chaos comes, it's a chance to be initiated. You know, thinking that the United States and its ideas in church have come closest to reflecting reality is like thinking Iceland is the basketball capital of the world. It's actually a psychological disorder. F-O-M-O. Fear of missing out. When a man becomes who he was made to be by God, every day is adventure. Folks, welcome back to the Ensigns Podcast. I'm Blaine. And I'm Sam. Welcome back, Sam. We missed you last week. Thank you. Way to go, Justin. This week, we want to begin by reminding everyone why we're having the conversation that we're having. Because the last episode especially was pretty heavy on the academic jargon side. And for some reason, we're talking about Karl Marx and his empathy, and for some reason we're talking about... And the reason isn't just because you're interested in that stuff? That's not the only reason. Right. I am interested in that stuff because ultimately we're not trying to make everybody into a philosopher or a scientist. There are a few of you in the audience, and good to see you. We're getting emails from you. Uh, Thanks for following along. We're definitely not trying to equip you to change people's minds. That's been one of my concerns in recording this is that you'll think, oh, man, next time I'm having a conversation with my hardcore secular humanist, social constructionist roommate, I can bring these things up and just go, listen, there's a whole industry inside psychology, inside marketing that just shows arguments don't change people. Facts don't change people in fact often the opposite happens. Mm. So this actually doesn't have anything to do with the people you interact with. This has to do with you having a story that is contributing to a vibrant life with God, that you have something of wonder, awe, excitement. But to get there, we've had to talk about how a worldview works, and we've had to talk about the fact that we're saturated in worldviews. And then we had to take a journey through what are the main narratives out there, and how, how do they penetrate us? Mm-hmm. And the hope is that we'll actually end up with a view of the who, what, when, where, why of the world around us that's deeper than what we've had before, that really anchors us in something eternal. So today, we've finally made it to the Bible. Woo! We've been saying all along that the Bible makes or has assumptions about what it means to be human, and we are finally going to dive into those. Uh, But one more caveat first. (laughs) So, not quite yet. This is just a thing for the way of the student. People tend to latch onto the first fact they hear about a discipline. It has this staying power. And so, if you are learning about vaccines, and you're going to talk to three family members, and the first family member happens to be an anti-vaxxer and gives a very compelling, persuasive argument against vaccinations, you are going to hold on to that in a way that the second person not only has to supply their own argument, they actually have to overcome argument number one. So this is just a little mental habit you can do. When you're entering a discipline, Picture like three boxes, three containers, 
and or, and then you know, you put them in a row. The first three things that I read or learn about this discipline, I'm going to put you know one each in every container, and then begin to evaluate them together. Because we want to talk about the image of God today, and we want to talk about Genesis one, but there is more in the image of God than we could possibly unpack in this forty-minute conversation. And so, just to go, hey, what we say here, don't start a conversation with your mom that goes, "Oh, uh, you have an attributional view of the image of God." Well, let me tell you that it doesn't have to do with anything, and be like, "No, no, 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 no." There's so much there. We want to call attention to a few features. So make your mental boxes. Of which we're, we're probably not even in the first three, to be fair, Blaine. You know, yeah. I mean, at the point, these people are listening. This isn't the first opinion we're going to be forming on this matter. That's true. It's a great point. So take the sermon series that you heard on the image of God and take the other things. And like, uh, you know, you can ask the Holy Spirit to begin showing you the connections and holding them together. The story begins, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the waters, et cetera, et cetera. And then the story progresses from there. And the picture that you have is a God who we've said before is creating on purpose and with pleasure, speaking, and it's done. And God in this story is portrayed as having complete authority, kingly authority over the universe. And what he says is accomplished. What he says is wonderful. It has this life that produces life. It's good. And, you know, chapter one kind of goes and lightness and dark and earth and land and fish and animals and birds. And then finally, dramatically, for the first time in the story, humans enter the scene. This is when we start to care about things, typically, because now we're involved. That's certainly when I start to care. It's like when your parents tell a story of when they were little. You care about when you come along the story. Yeah, or when you see yourself in your friend's graduation slideshow. It's the best picture of the um, whole slideshow. I just, I just wait for that. I'm like, oh, there's me. And in the strategies of reading Genesis, people roll onto the scene, and you kind of go, okay, so... I'm going to let the way this story works tell me the rules with which I'm supposed to read it. So I'm going to be working through, but I'm not going to import a bunch. Verse 26, uh, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Then you get a poem first poem in the Bible, verse 27. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Boom. We're here. And and you get sort of a repetitive creation account in Genesis 2. But this thing happens. Let us make man, Adam, let us make human, singular, humanity, in our image. And in so doing, spawns hundreds, if not thousands of years of debate over what 
it actually means to be made in the image of God. I mean, if I were to ask you just to reflect on your history, and we both went to Christian colleges, we've both been in and out of churches and had conversations with friends from a variety of traditions. What are the kinds of things that you remember being said in this area around what it means to carry the image of God? Oh, wow. I think if people were able to get a lot of the religious language and education out of the way and get back to that first experience, it would be described as a a dignifying thing, a very hopeful thing that there is this gravity long before there's an incarnate God. There is something about our humanity, about our design that reflects God and is complex because it's reflected in all of humanity rather than in a single person. Then I would throw on a layer of the ransomed heart understanding of gender, male and female, trying to get distinctions of that complexity being how is God nurturing and adventurous? How is he mother and father? How is he all of these things? And how do we reflect that? So we're trying to learn about God through the things we know about people because they're easier to know about your neighbor and your family than they are to know about text. And so I would say that would be the next thing that people drop onto it. This might sound in, in like a backhanded compliment, but that was actually like a, a really great <laughs> you're um, like, definition. Why does it feel like you're going to give me a compliment in your, uh, your heavy study series? It's going to be a little bit patronizing. No, it's that you just uh, don't have any notes and you're texting. <laughs> no, no, I'm not, I'm not texting. I, the other thing that comes to mind is actually this Douglas Adams quote. In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and been widely regarded as a bad move. I that love. would be the other camp that hears this story and sort of goes, Ugh, great. Yes. Who cares about who looks like what God? It's sort of messy and that's confusing language. Right. We could actually unpack the definition you just gave to great effect. There were words you used like reflection that are extremely important and and wonderful in considering what it means to be made in the image of God. It was interesting that you said that humanity versus individuals. One of the things I want to do, though, is go, considering the image of God is actually one of the areas that our Protestantness can get us into trouble uh, because of the, you know, sola scriptura thing, right, of we are only going to consider this text. And the reason it's problematic is, you know, we've said before, when you're reading the Bible, God does not speak in spite of the funkiness of people. He speaks through the funkiness of people. So if, obviously, this is a ridiculous example, but like a text exchange between you and I became canonized and and, I, and they were reading through and they were like, saw like, sup thug from me to you. And a hardcore look at the text would go thug and people would get on, you know, their blue letter Bible and go, oh my gosh, cr- criminal, you know, some lower class of society or, or the, you know, muscle associated with a particular area of the mafia in Boston. And 
you would miss that, oh, no, no, no. There was a moment in time when uh, language got co-opted by communities of people to be used in a funny, loving way. It's because of we're weird and we're situated, it actually is deeply affectionate, right? Which is not to say there's no gymnastics to be done like anything's going to mean the hardcore, you know, magical opposite of what it seems like it means. Right. It just means that if you're Karl Barth, uh, some of his uh, meditations on the image of God are really funny because he has to go word by word. And he goes, when God says, let us make man according to our image and in our likeness, he has to go, see, we're not the image of God. We're the likeness of the image of God. And so we approximate this thing. And what I'm driving towards is that the action here matters. And Mm -hmm. so rather than trying to look at the image and go, oh, we're made in the image you have to look at what kind of scene is it? What kind of text is it? And God is portrayed as a king who speaks and it is done with authority over creation. And then the word image is selem in Hebrew, and it's the word idol. Uh, and it's in the book of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar, who comes down and takes Israel into captivity in Daniel chapter 3, make a selah, make an image of me and set it on the plane of Babylon for people to worship, make an idol. Now, I hear the word idol and it makes me nervous. Why? Because they're not great things. Like when Nebuchadnezzar makes an idol of himself uh, or when the Israelites make idols of golden calves, uh, they're, they're typically things that need to be torn down, destroyed, melted, burned. And so when you say that God created us as an idol, I sort of go, Uh Yeah, Uh, unless God's claim to authority was legitimate. Because what are the things that an idol does? Well, at this point in time, if you are a king of the Ammonites or the Moabites or any of the surrounding kingdoms, you rule from a central city. So you're in Nineveh. And then in the provinces where you can't personally appear, you build Selim. You build idols of yourself that display your grandeur and your power, and also affirm your right to rule. And those, there's so much coming in there where it's like, mm-hmm. you see this thing, and it's deeply inspiring of the power of uh, the king. Like, you know, you... Right, I'm okay. I'm, for some reason, I'm okay with all that language for some reason. But, well, because, uh, you know, idol is associated with the worship of a false god. Right. Which should be super alarming. Like, oh, yeah. Um, Because it sounds like you're about to be like, wow, man, did you guys hear what Blaine said on the podcast? He like, human beings are basically idols and we're going to like start worshiping them? Yeah, that would be very, very messed up. (laughs) Um, But, right, the concern is legitimate because like, again, looking when Nebuchadnezzar orders everyone to bow down to the idol, they're bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar. Mm. Uh, And so... When you see human beings in this vein, you go, oh, like the worship, you're looking at the human, but the worship that's being evoked for you is for the only uncreated God, is for Jesus. So we're not going like, you know, you know, Jeffersonian 
deism can come in here and be like, humans are, but humans are gods. And go like, no, 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 no. Um, We are images. Like there's this imperial language set of like, one, you and your humanity display the grandeur of God. And you affirm God's right to rule. I think that's fascinating. Um, That's a really moving thing to me when I think about people who perpetrate injustice or even when I think about like where I blow it. Because when you have a person participating in injustice, the irony is as a human, they affirm God's right to rule. And so there's this foreboding, oh, oh man, the area that they're violating actually belongs to God. And the reason I know it is because a person is there who affirms God's right to rule his world. Hmm. Okay. All right. I'm skeptical because I don't think I fully understand all the implications yet. This isn't a podcast on um, how people reveal God. This is a podcast that's continuing to explore what people are for. And so you're taking us to human beings are created as a reflection of God's power and meant to carry it into all the places that he is physically not seen. Yeah, I'm talking about one dimension of this thing, which is that we are the image of God on the earth. The, uh, it's language that's going to get very much developed by Paul the Apostle into this, into the reflection that you were talking about. But one of the things that associates with it of like, what are people for is that imperial authority. And so there is a hot debate about whether people rule and subdue because they're made in the image of God or ruling and subduing is what it means to be made in the image of God. And in the ultimate sort of conciliatory space, I'm like, the two arguments there are actually both kind of holding up really cool things about what it means to be made in the image of God. We're going to key in on this podcast, The Role, um, because it's super significant to understanding what we're for as people, though I'm definitely not saying or even remotely qualified to say, this is everything there is to be made in the image of God. But let's look at the language. So um, God King says, let's make an idol, (laughs) an image uh, of me and let them rule and have dominion. Um, The words there are really interesting. God says in Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You have this joint command to have dominion, to rule and subdue. And the words in Hebrew, subdue, is kabash. Rule is radah. And one thing that scholars of Hebrew notice when they get to this is that this is very aggressive military language. Uh, Like when the Canaanites are being driven out of the promised land, it's like God says to them, go in and subdue the Canaanites using the same thing. I... And one thing that I want to say about that is that's not necessarily a great reading strategy for the Old Testament. The language builds. You know, we did a podcast on this, so you can't pick the last meaning of the word. 
when everything about it has been revealed and take it back to the beginning. You have to let its first appearance tell you the most about it. And it's really interesting. So it has this express dominion and subdue. And you go, okay, so um, what does that mean? Well, it seems to go on in verse 29 when God says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Then he points out to them, it's a really fascinating thing. By the way, still talking to humanity, to the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And so here's your stuff, rule and subdue. This stuff I'm giving to these people and the immediate implications sort of like for... um, for the audience and the narrative that develops as it relates to like agriculture is this language of cultivation and bringing forth the potential set inside of some pretty significant constraints. So here's a picture of what that would look like where it's, there are lots of accusations uh, leveled against Christians and Christianity that's like the devastation of the earth can be traced back in the West to our belief out of Genesis 1 that the, everything in the earth is for us and we are here to rule and subdue it. That's actually like a pretty new idea. And the evidence actually runs the other way, that like hardcore enlightenment deism of human beings having mastery over all things, manage the measure of all things, gets the devastation going. Hmm. Because... Uh, For the majority of the story, the way that that gets interpreted is like, wow, you have set me in authority over creation. You've set me up as your right to rule and expressing your authority over all things. And we know that that authority is incredibly significant because when Adam sins in Genesis 3, all of creation falls under a curse. Mm -hmm. So he clearly, he expresses power over the entire world. And what he's supposed to do is draw forth the possibilities of flourishing in the earth in ways that it would not do if people did not intervene without ruining the earth. Right. Yeah. I mean, Christians get accused of a lot of things. When I was in college, the big accusation was that belief in end times was causing Christians to be passive and trying to do anything about the environment, which might be true of some people. Um, But that I don't know many people that hear rule and subdue and think I'm meant to just take. I'm meant to just own and reap the spoils because it's also put in the context of a thing being labeled as good. And you've referred back to the Tove podcast. Um, but that piece of there are parameters that God sees as orders of good and good fruits of things, ways that things can go. And so there's a lot of innate things to be unearthed and cultivated and subdued. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been that command to engage it, to bring the kingdom, if it was all, all done already. But there's also a paradigm of a good way of doing that versus a bad way. So I don't... I, I hear you, and I also don't understand how that was ever an idea that people credibly leveled against Christians because I think any reading of that intelligently would be 
no, there's a sense of mastery and dominion that is bringing forth goodness. And part of the problem is when we have an understanding of the image of God as like human beings, what, we have the image of God and we're really completely set apart from all other creatures. There is a strain in Protestantism that's really visible in Thomas Aquinas where this is how Protestants have tried to figure out what it means to be made in the image of God. They make lists of human attributes they can see. They make lists of divine attributes revealed in the Bible, and then they draw lines between the two, and then they go, any makes sense. Anytime they line up, that's what it means to be made in the image of God. I can see why you would try to do that. And so here's here's an example of uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, Summa Theologica, he writes, Man is said to be after the image of God, not as regards to his body, but as regards that whereby he excels other animals. Hence, when it is said, let us make man in our image and likeness, it is added, and let him have dominion over the fishes of the sea. Now, man excels all animals by his reason and intelligence. Hence, it is according to his intelligence and reason that man is said to be made to the image of God. That's really uh, flimsy Aristotelian reasoning there. But, you know, a lot of people think something like that of, you know, it's, how are we different? Well, I don't know. We just kind of are different, but it usually lands on reason or intelligence. Like the Sistine Chapel, uh, you know, God creating man. Have, Have you ever seen this? Or like the limpy arm reach. Limpy arm reach. What yeah. God is inside Who of. Who hasn't seen this? Uh, well, like a bunch of angels. Hang on, hang on. This is awesome. I'm pulling it up here on my computer. Sam, what is God inside of in that picture? A parachute full of things and people. A parachute that is intentionally shaped like a brain. Oh, yeah. No, I remember this now. Right? Where... You know, Michelangelo, people say that he was being, you know, revolutionary in trying to subvert Christianity in some way. And and no, he was not. He was reflecting what he thought uh, an honoring representation of the image of God was by going like, here's God imparting reason, the supernatural power. Like, but part of the problem with that is, if the story you tell yourself about being made in the image of God is some attribute things don't have, uh, that will be threatened when other creatures or things do that thing. Like there's a famous philosopher who spawns a school called behaviorism, B.F. Skinner, in the 20th century. And he goes, oh, humans have nothing that's different. We just have more of what every creature has. Mm. And sort of kind of, you know, models like, you know, and it's it, his thought has been developed to go, you know, if you look at the appropriate time scale and if you look at an entire forest, forests can be understood as solving problems. If you look at, you know, thousands of year type things or... Oh, just watch Blue Planet 2. There's a fish that uses a rock to open its food. And you're like, oh, there's fish that use tools. That has reason. There you go. And, Done. And, and all of a sudden you go like, Oh, what 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 does it mean? How do I and go? Hang on, hang on, relax. Um, the in one sense, the the biblical audience of Genesis uh, 
had simultaneously a much lower and a much higher view of people than we do, I think. And they had a much lower view in that in Genesis, uh, like humans don't get their own day. They show up uh, along with all the other creatures. Um, All the creatures in Genesis 1 are described as living nephesh, which Mm. is the word that ends up being translated as soul for the majority of the Old Testament. So Mm. like... That's cool. He fills the earth with living souls. Some of them are fish. Some of them are animals. Some of them are humans. And they... They definitely had like a hierarchical vision of humanity as being at the top. Sure. But they also had a very vertical vision of like, yeah, and we live among other creatures. Mm -hmm. But from among creatures, we alone have been picked and endowed and then filled with the image of God. Right. Which um, you can forgive people for thinking that, just looking around the world. But you have a problem, I am able to surmise, because to put ourselves on just like the top of a pyramid and having more reason than the other animals is how we reflect God isn't substantive enough for you and doesn't seem to line up with the narrative that you were already alluding to of we are the representatives of God. We reflect back to him in some other intentional way. Yeah. Correct? Yes, I do. Uh, the problem that I have with it is, like, one, in this particular text, it doesn't seem to be there. Like, what instead is there is this story of, oh, man is creature, is, give, is like, made God's image and then commissioned with this right to rule. And if we only think of ourselves as um, possessing some attribute— we'll neglect one of the single most important ways that we carry the image of God, which is uh, what we are meant to do with God in his universe. So here's where this becomes super important. Um, One of the things that matters most is what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to make creation do what it could do, but won't do if we don't intervene but not at the expense of the rest of creation. Richard Balcom has a book, Living with Other Creatures, that really goes into this and goes like, part of that constraint is part of the beauty of it. And whatever your environment is, to go, this commission applies to, you know, if you're a, if you're a musician, make music and musical theory do what it wouldn't do if it were just lying there. Um, but not in a way that ends up somehow devastating the world. I don't know how you do that with musical theory. But, you know, maybe by like... Harder to do with musical theory. But if, you know, people have shown that too many hikers in national parks playing music can disrupt the migratory patterns of birds. <laughs> okay, so maybe it is possible. I think of the conversation we had with Hank Shaw, who is secular, and yet he has this strong conviction that nature is and can be better with human beings' involvement. He looks around and goes, it has a latent potential that... Like well, everything will move towards entropy unless we engage it. And you're like, this is a guy who doesn't agree with a bunch of the ways that we see reality and yet can see that there is a need on creation's behalf for the intervention of people. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that people think right now is that all, you know, is that human interventions are bad. Yeah, no, I know that. It's mostly guilty. You look around and you're like, we're killing the planet. We're drinking too many plastic water bottles. There was an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed a fly. Like, 
that's sort of held up as what humans do when they try because to intervene. Because of Chernobyl? Yeah, or it's like, uh, we introduce a plant to an area, but then it goes crazy, so we create a pesticide to kill the plant. Yeah, it's not always the, even that intentional. But yeah, it's very guilt-ridden. Like, we should just get away from it. Just stop intervening. Right, stop. Um, the picture given here is that no creation needs you, and there's a way to do it. And there are all these wonderful models. There was a moment where you offhandedly referred to Adam made a choice, and all of creation was cursed by that choice. That's very different than people mishandling creation. That seems to imply a dependency or a cascade of effect, a, a rulership that I thought we, we were uncomfortable with. Oh, yes, let's go there. So Adam is given uh, imperial authority. Humanity is given authority. And because that authority like it is not just you're the smartest it is no you are god's representative what you do will have effects spiritual as well as physical we were talking last night people f- sometimes think that god gives adam the curse right after the fall um, that's not what happens if you look at the text what god says to adam is the ground is cursed because of you uh, the part of Speech of that verb is past participle, which just means it's describing an action that's already been done. Right. So it's like when you decided uh, to rule apart from union with God, you actually brought a curse down on all creation so that instead of being tov and producing life, it's now going to produce thorns and thistles and ultimately death. Now, The remarkable thing, this is what the Jewish audience hearing the good news about Jesus is blown away by when when Paul goes, you know, if through one man sin entered the world, how much more through one man? You know, he's describing that through the atoning death of Jesus, the curse is canceled. And we can now enact that into our dominions. We're like, we can realign our authority into alignment with God and reintroduce Tov into our kingdoms. You see this happening at small businesses in town. You, you, know, you see this happening with teachers. And we can talk just about cultivation and environmentalism, but go, oh no, anywhere that we hold authority, we are calling out the possibilities that would not emerge if we didn't intervene. So here's something interesting. I think I have seen... Um, a right aversion to trying to recreate Eden before all things are made new, where you try to just get to a very happy place that ends up feeling like the garden again, whether that's um, a sailboat in the Mediterranean when you and you never interact with the, with the rest of the world. It's this fleeing from the rest of the brokenness. And so I've, I've seen people try to push back on that, but that can have some negative spillover into an apathy to try to bring goodness anywhere. Because if you're like, wow, you know, I'm just waiting for Jesus to do it. Therefore, the best thing I can hope to do is to be a good person. And what you're throwing out there is this charge of, no, 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 human beings were meant to do this and can still do it before all things are made new again. You still have the ability to rule and subdue and bring Tove in this world now. Oh, as a, as a part of bringing the kingdom of God. N.T. Wright 
talks about this in Surprised by Hope, where he goes, what you are building gets rolled in to the kingdom. And I know I know that impulse for people where you look at what looks like retreating to just try and restore Eden. The funny thing is, is you go, okay, well, what is Eden? Eden is this mountaintop garden where heaven and earth intersect and where you have this foreshadowing of the kingdom of the heavens, the whole spiritual realm saturating the whole physical realm. It only happens, you know, in Eden in the Genesis story. But you go, are the people who are, you know, trying to just make a small good life actually trying to reintroduce the presence of God to all creation? Because that is the Eden vision. So maybe that's the litmus test then. Is it, are they trying to do it for themselves and eject? Or is there something of the vision that spills over to others? Absolutely. We've hit on a couple of things here that go, there are a couple more conversations to be had. Like humans are not just image bearers. Humans are also one of the places in which heaven and earth intersect. Like it, very significant that where the, if you were like make a Venn diagram of the spiritual realm, the spiritual dimension and the, and the physical dimension, humans are in both. Uh, that's very significant given that the ultimate destiny of the universe is for those two just to be completely united under the reign of Jesus. We also breezed right over, you know, we have the image of God, this role, um, which we have the image of God, which includes this role. We also have the ruach, the breath of God in us, which is itself very significant in forming how we think about people. But this episode, uh, one other point to drive home here is part of what we do in being image bearers of God is we have authority. So our choices matter hugely. And to go, um, it really helps in the conversation of what makes humans different? What's the image? And go, it's the role. I can't point to an exact trait or my thinking might not be complete on the image of God, but I can for sure tell that you are supposed to rule creation in you know, the same way that a dad is both an identity and a function. And you're like, but what makes a dad a dad? And it's hard to point to like, if you were to say, well, compassion and go, but you know, aren't nuns compassionate? What makes a dad a dad? Competency. Aren't handymen competent? And you go, it's all of those things rolled into this role. And then with this massive, but we are supposed to fulfill that role by aligning with God. And this becomes, you know, the huge theme of will we pursue our eternal destiny, which is eternal life, which includes being the place heaven and earth overlap. Will we do that uh, by aligning ourselves with God or will we grab the fruit of the tree? One of the things that's really significant about the Genesis 3 narrative is that when the snake rolls in and deceives Eve and then Adam goes with it as well. Uh, one of the things that you see happening is this snake, who's more than a snake, who's the evil one ruling over the humans and being like, oh, that's, that's an inversion that uh, when they choose to fulfill their role apart from God, they abdicate their authority, they invoke a curse, and then actually the animals end up ruling them 
And then to make things even crazier, this theme enters the Bible, which is that when people use their authority, their power, because the image doesn't go anywhere. It's like the worst person on earth has set on them the assignment to rule and subdue. And when they use that authority for their own interests, they become like animals. Famously in Nebuchadnezzar, right? He literally like turns into an animal in the story. And, you know, he eats the grass of the field, which is the animal food from Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. And, it, and he grows like feathers on his body and long fingernails. But it repeats like in the Daniel chapter 7 vision, all the earthly empires that are violent are portrayed as these crazy beasts with horns. And, and get this one, you know, Esau in the Jacob and Esau story is like a beast. He's, he's hairy and the things that he does are these like aggressive, he's like a wild donkey on the open country. And he's departed his humanity to a certain extent. But in a fascinating plot twist, to steal the birthright, Jacob, to get what he thinks he needs apart from God, Jacob literally puts on animal skins. And it's Mm. like, oh my gosh. Um, One of the ways that we converge deeply into like the glory of humanity is aligning in our commission to rule with God on the earth. And that's the thing that brings flourishing and life. But when we take the power to rule and produce effects, um, the picture that we're given to drive home the point in the Bible is you actually are departing your humanity and you're becoming like the animals. 